In this episode of Boss Files, Rebecca Minkoff, the woman behind the eponymous brand, a millennial on a mission, and a mom who says that whole work-life balance thing, well, it doesn't exactly exist. Rebecca Minkoff has shaken up the New York fashion scene, both on and off the runway. She's integrated cutting-edge technology in her designs, her stores have smart mirrors and connected fitting rooms, and she's a social media darling, championed by her loyal followers who call themselves the Minkettes. Here's an inside look into the world of Rebecca Minkoff. Rebecca Minkoff, I've worn your bags, I've worn your clothes. It's nice to have you here in person. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you. You are a millennial. I'm a millennial, albeit we're a little bit older on the millennial range, if you will. But, (laughs) I mean, what's fascinating about you and this brand, and we'll get into the story of how you started the empire in a moment, but... You are a millennial designing for a millennial, and you run the largest global brand in fashion that has that. What power does it give you to be the same age and sex as your customer? I think it gives us as a brand incredible power because I'm going through the same life moments that my exact customer is going through. And if she's on the younger side of the millennial, then I know what she's about to go through. I know her struggles. I know her fears. I know, you know, her mentality. And I'm so much closer to it than someone who might be older and kind of designed for a different generation. So I think that ability to connect with her on that means a lot. And she knows it's authentic. It's not someone trying to act young or trying to speak you know, do millennial speak. It's this is our dialogue and, and it's organic. The story of how Rebecca Minkoff, the brand, came to be is a fascinating one. It has lots of twists and turns. You went to your, I think, dad for some help. He said, no, go to your brother. Yeah. I mean, let's just take me back to the beginning or yep. when you were starting to take off with, with, with your, you know, your first handbag that really caught on. You were out of your apartment in New York City. Yes. And then what? So the bag actually got written about by Daily Candy, which was the only social media of its day. And that uh, email had the power to transform businesses, and it did. Um, So the day that that hit, and it was called The Catwalk of Shame was the title. The morning after bag. Yeah, the morning after bag. um, It sold out of the store that we gave the credit to. And I knew I had something, but I actually had no money left. You know, Con Ed, the week before, the Teamsters had come over, and they basically said, we're going to stand here until you figure out how you're going to pay us for the electrical bill. Um, And I I was at that point where I was like, "I, I can't fund this, you know, with my odd jobs anymore. I was a stylist as well. Um, and so that is when I called my father and I said, I finally am on to something. I've got real orders. There's a heat behind this. Um, will you help me? And he said, no, but try your brother. So that's really how it began. I called my brother. He was... You, you really couldn't keep the lights on? I mean, it was getting to that. I hadn't paid my electrical bill in months. So I just thought, oh, what are they going to do? Turn it off? And you weren't, um, out, you weren't out buying Chanel handbags? Definitely not. <laughs> I think my my maximum spend of you know I was the I was at that point would eat dinner before I went out with my friends right of course I, um, I remember couldn't order course. a drink I'm like why didn't I drink in those days oh I couldn't afford yeah. to so it was really you know everyone who has uh, an entrepreneur background or who starts out or who moves to New York City yeah. um, I was living on twenty three thousand dollars a year so so you went to your brother who was in the tech space and you you know asked him for help. He believed in this enough. And I read that he actually believed in it so much that he maxed out his credit cards. His wife goes to the grocery store one day, like 
they decline her credit card. Yes. She comes home and says, why can't we buy any food? And he says, I spent it all on leather. This true? Is, this is 100% true. Um, as we began to see the business grow, um, we couldn't get a loan from a bank. We hadn't yet figured out that you could have a factor. Um, and so he was just like, okay, I guess I'll use our credit line. And he, kept, he would max out the Amex and pay it down. But that particular day, uh, we had to buy all the leather for our production run, and the card did decline. Mm. When you look at success and failure and brands that last and stand the test of time and those that don't, talk to us about entering into the fashion world. It's a world I know nothing about. I'm just a consumer of it. But it's also a world where you guys have said was really a dictatorship. Yes. What do you mean? I think that when we first started out, there was 10 key buyers, 10 key editors that if they deemed you uh, the right designer, the most talented, then you became part of a circle that was, you know, helping each other out and pushing each other, promoting each other. And I think that we're here because of our consumer. Our consumer chose us. I began to talk to her online when no one else would. The minkettes, you've named them. We named that. Well, they named themselves. And I, and I said, wow, there's a lot of you calling yourselves minkettes. And it was really this tribe. It was probably early crowdsourcing, the early squad of girls that were passionate, that were so appreciative that I wasn't above them. I wasn't too good to talk to them. I was happy to hear their critiques, their needs, their wants, and really just focus on tightening that dialogue with her. And I think uh, she chose us and we're here because she keeps loving the brand. But I, I also think for a brand to keep relative today, you have to keep evolving. You can't stay still. You also were one of the first, if not the first designer uh, online, especially through social media, Correct. to talk directly to your consumer. And I, I had read that people <clears throat> called you crazy for doing it. We like, had, you don't need to engage with them, really. We had interventions. We had sit-downs with you know heads of department stores um, saying, don't talk to these women You're, that's beneath you. You should be in your ivory tower. And when we first started working with bloggers, they were like, those people, those D-list celebrities, those disgusting humans. And we were like we actually think that there's something here. And we think that this is probably how uh, fashion and storytelling and content will actually evolve. So we didn't listen to them. And that was very scary to not listen. The first uh, fashion brand on Snapchat, is that right? We think so. It was very empty. It was Taco Bell and us. <laughs> <laughs> has it worked? What has been the net benefit to the brand, would you say? How can you quantify that for us? Because I do believe that there is, you know, a line with social media, right? I mean, you don't just want to flood the zone. You want to have an identity and something authentic. I think that for us, each time a new social platform that has emerged that had longevity, if we got on it and we began to talk to our customer and give her the type of information she wants, which is different for each platform, we began to see that it just tightened our connection to her. It tightened our ability to have her engage with us uh -huh. and stay with the brand. And we see conversion, you know, when we post something on Instagram, you know, and it's tied into a mailer. Yep. Um, that's kind of a no-brainer, um, social media 101, but it really does convert. So talk to me about running a business in the Instagram economy. I mean, what is, what is the Instagram economy in your mind and how does it change how you do business? I think for us, uh, the Instagram economy, you know, our focus is becoming increasingly content-based. Um, how much content, and we're ramping it up this year, can we give her? 
uh, primarily it will be on Instagram, YouTube, you know, or other Twitter. Um, but I think it's about she wants to be led into the life, into the world of, and how do we show her not just my world, um, but the world that she aspires to live in herself. So take me back before we talk about the now much more to Jenna Elfman mm -hmm. and the I Love New York t-shirt. And frankly, the wake of 9-11. I mean, you were starting this company and ramping up in the wake of, you know, the horrific terror attack on this country, 9-11. And, and somehow it oddly all ties together. It oddly ties together. Um, I got the idea to cut up an I Love New York shirt. I was on vacation in the Caribbean and I loved how they had cut up the shirts and put beads on them. And I came home and I didn't want a Caribbean shirt. I wanted a, you know, a shirt from where I was from. So I sent one to my sister-in-law. She was at dinner with Jenna. Um, her husband and my brother are long-term friends and Jenna said, I want one. So that was on September 9th. I sent it to her. Um, September 11th happened. My first fashion show was the night before. It was on September 10th. Um, it was part of a group show for Fashion Week, and I was like, I've made it. I'm having a show. Um, obviously woke up to the news. Um, my parents had come in for the show, and they called me. They said, we're, you know, we're, we're driving out of town. You coming with us? I said, no, I'm standing. I'm staying in my city. Um, I'm not abandoning it right now. So um, I actually just decided to stop working at that moment, and I volunteered downtown. And after seeing the horrors, and be, I was down there and seeing, you know, what had happened, um, I thought, you know what, Jenna wore the shirt two days later. She mentioned it on Jay Leno. I got floods of orders of inquiries, and I said, I'm going to donate all the money to the Red Cross. Mm -hmm. So for about eight months, that's all I did was that T-shirt. I just would bike down to Canal Street, barter with the guys, go back home, tie and cut, and then I had um, a really great supporter of an e-commerce site that would sell it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that cycle lasted for about nine months. Yep. Um, but what it did is it, it allowed my name uh, to, get out to, to get out there so that I could call a store and say, yes, yes, I have an I Love New York shirt, but I actually have, you know, more than that. And then what? So that went on for about four years where I had a very small apparel line. I was going door to door, um, really doing everything from sewing the goods, selling them, collecting the money, biking places. Uh, to all the boutiques, knocking on doors. Um, I think when people move here, they have a really glamorous idea of what that must be like. There's nothing glamorous about those four years of my life. Um, and then I had decided just to do a handbag that was just going to be an accessory to the line. Jenna, again, came into my life and said, I'd love to wear this bag as part of a character in a movie. Um, and so I said, I better, that lit a fire under me. And I decided, okay, I'll make this bag and spend the last of my dollars. So it was my last $1,600. Um, I got two samples for that price. I gave her one and I kept one. Wow. What was the movie? It was called Touch and it didn't make it in the movie because uh, FedEx oh, delivered it. <laughs> FedEx delivered it two hours late and I was devastated and I thought to myself, okay, I just bought myself a designer handbag. That's what I just did. There you go. Wow. FedEx delivered it late. Ouch. Then you've, you've taken on investors. Is that correct? Correct. In 12, in 2012 and then in 2014, we took on investors. So that is in and of itself something that fascinates me, how hard it is for women-led companies to get investors. Um, we see the numbers are just appalling when you look at them. Um, you were doing it with your brother. I was doing it with my brother, and um, as much as I would like to say I led the funding round, um, I know where my skill set is and isn't. 
and he really did lead and was responsible for um, leading all the work that goes into a funding round. Do you feel like that helped you be taken more seriously by investors? It's unfortunate to say, um, but a lot of female entrepreneurs have told me that having a man by your side. Did you did you experience any you know proverbial glass ceilings on that front? You know, I didn't. The only the only glass ceiling that there is for me is that I didn't have the business knowledge right. to be able to speak about funding and business plans and a five-year strategy, right? Mm -hmm. um, I can speak intelligently about a lot of other things and I am in all the board meetings and I have plenty to say. But I think that had I known that information and been able to, I, I personally was raised from my mom to be fearless and to never let my brothers overpower me. You know, from there's a video at the age of two where my brother's messing with me and I'm fighting back. Mm. And I think that I've never, I know so many women and I want to support so many women that have felt that way, but I've never had that feeling in a room. Yeah. You know, I haven't either. And when I think about raising my daughter, who's one now, and I know you're a mother of two, the word fearless really does come to mind right away. That's what I want her to be is brave. Yes and fearless. Yes. You guys get off the ground, you're doing, you know, pretty well. Um, but before you got those investors, the recession hits. Correct. And you've talked about being approached by, uh, you know, big department stores, retailers, and they said, you know, you got to cut your prices. You have to do it or, or you're not going to make it. Yep. You took their advice and you, you follow what you guys have called the Wrigley model. Tell me about that. So we actually were celebrating a holiday dinner with one of these department stores and we were cheersing to the business and they said, cheers, but if there is a five, as in 595, in front of the price tag of your bags, that won't make it. You need to cut it down to 495. Wow. Um, our prices have since dropped way more than that. But we really looked at what was happening with the economy and suddenly our customer had a different financial situation. And she couldn't afford our bags. And so we could alienate her and not empathize with her. Um, or we could say, you know what? We're not interested right now in making a profit. So let's cut our prices down to the lowest we can go so that we can keep the lights on and really just make sure that she can still feel excited, worthy, and that she's able to purchase these bags. But in the age of, you know, fast fashion and huge price competition, how did you make the decision? Are you saying you didn't cut quality at all? You just took less in terms of, you know, on the profit side for you guys, on the revenue side? Correct. We took nothing out of the bags at that point. There were small things where you might see a seam in the leather because that saves how you cut sure. it. Um, we might have said, okay, we had a gold plaque and now it's going to be a leather plaque. Yep. It was very minor changes, mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, we said, you know what, we will, uh, with scale, be able to get a better margin and that will take longer to make a profit, but we're going to do that because we want to be there for our consumers. Did that ultimately help the business, do you believe? Because in the short run, it was difficult, but... Do you believe by lowering your price point, which you've gone lower since, you were able to attract more customers that have stuck with you, people who would never have even looked at a $595 handbag? For sure. I mean, we plotted our growth. I think it was something like 546%. There was a delay, so we cut our prices. We thought, you know, here the bags have shipped, and we were really excited to see all the sales. 
And there was a four-month delay that the consumer hadn't realized yet what had just happened. We were like, what did we just do? We just cut our prices, and now we're in trouble. Mm. Um, four months later, all of a sudden, things spiked, and they grew. So we actually grew during the recession because of this. And the appreciation and the love that we got back from our customer by listening to her um, came back to us tenfold. Now you're operating it. In a, in a fascinating, volatile, changing time. This is the age of, yes, the Instagram economy where people want photos of what they're wearing and the newest thing and it changes how you advertise and market, but also the age of, you know, rent the runway and rental clothing and bags and yep. people can get $1,000, $2,000 items renting them. Right. Um, how does that change your business? Is that net positive or negative or challenging for you? It hasn't been challenging. We actually do a lot of business with Rent the Runway, um, and we know that our girl's on there, and she loves to be able to rent bags. And I think now more than ever, um, if you can service all those different outlets, you know, you have, you know, we have different price points that she can buy it. It won't hurt her too much. Um, we have our aspirational product, um, but for the person who's just constantly every day or every week needs new product, there is a valuable outlet for that. So have you noticed that people are buying less of your brand because they can rent it? Nope. No. We've seen, no, we are, you know, our sales are up year over year. And we've also seen that, you know, our business with Rent the Runway is great as well. So I think it's two different customers. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm someone that if I buy something, I actually want to own it. And I'll sell it later if I decide, you know, I don't want it. But I think there are different things for different people. So maybe we call it Retail 3.0 or the experience that you guys are trying to give your customer and give them in the store. Everything's different about your store. When I walk into the Soho store and when you walk into the different stores that you have, <coughs> the lighting in the dressing room is different. The mirrors are different. The way you order clothing to the dressing room to try on in addition to the items you already have in there, all computerized, all led by technology. Why? I think the main goal here is we never want to use technology for technology's sake. The goal is, is what are the pain points that our consumer experiences in brick and mortar? And how do we take the best of an e-commerce experience and put it into a brick and mortar environment? So it should be that you should be able to adjust the lighting as you're buying by occasion. Or it should Meaning I'm going to wear this on a sunny summer day. I want to see how it looks in that lighting or I'm going to wear this out at night. Correct. You should be able to sort of look at what you're buying and say, this is the environment it's going to mimic. How does it look on me? I think you should be able to uh, tap for an associate to bring you a new style and a new color so that you don't have to get dressed and stick your head out. Does the dressing room know what I brought in? It does know. There are no cameras in the dressing room. <laughs> don't worry. But everything is RFID tagged. Um, what does that mean? Radio frequency identification. So it's a small little chip and it signals uh, to the technology that's behind the mirror. These are the items. Wow. And then the mirror actually pulls in from our e-commerce site the items. And pulls it up and says, you should try these. It says, here's what you brought in, and then yeah. here's what Rebecca is suggesting you wear with this. Because a lot of people um, don't actually know how to pair their outfits. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're depending on the stylists. And so this is now you know that this is coming from me about how to wear your look. Sounds expensive. I mean, this is not a cheap store for you to build. This is not a cheap store, but one of the benefits about us uh, being early adopters of technology is there are a lot of companies that are willing to actually put the investment in, knowing that we're going to be leading them. So mm -hmm. in this case, the original uh, company that built these mirrors and funded them was eBay.
and they knew that they were going to be part of the store of the future. Huh. Uh, we've since transferred and we're working with Oak Labs. It's the same original team that was at eBay. Um, but we know that now we get offers like, will you help launch this with us? So it actually didn't cost us money to yeah. build the, those mirrors. Can you uh, share with us any of the numbers you've measured in terms of how much more you believe it makes people buy? Because even, you know, you have this philosophy in your stores of not, you don't want people to stand in line because standing in line is when they second guess right. their ideas right. for what they're buying. Yeah, so from seeing all the clothing that's brought into the room, she's putting in three times the amount of clothing, so she's trying on three times more. And our sales have been up 30% uh, year over year with the clothing sales. And then our store... Is that a direct correlation? Is that because of this technology? We think so. Okay. I mean, most people think of Rebecca Minkoff as a handbag company. Mm -hmm. um, but for our sales to be 40% of apparel overall in our stores is pretty high number considering we're just a handbag brand. I'm mm. saying that in quotes. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so right. I think that those dressing rooms are really generating sales. And for us, it actually is amazing because for the first time you have dressing room abandonment. Mm -hmm. We as a retailer can look in and see what didn't she buy? What is she pairing with what? Is there a fit issue? Is it a fabric issue? And you get enormous intel into what's going on in there Wait, without you know, cameras. You know, how do you know if it's a fit issue if you don't have cameras? I'll give you an example. We had a period of two weeks where about 60 of the same jacket were brought into the fitting room and almost zero were purchased. So we said, hmm, that's weird. There must be a fit issue. We pulled the goods, confirmed it was a fit issue. So stuff like that, you can start going. If there's a yeah. big pattern, you start to dive in. Um, so I, I've heard these smart mirrors, let's call them that, were invented by men and women <laughs> started trying things on and they called them fat mirrors. Is this true? It is true. So when we were at the final stages of uh, the mirrors being complete, my brother and two women from our office flew uh, to San Francisco to try them out. And they said, these are fat mirrors. Yeah. What are you doing? And it was, the, it was one of the first moments, there were several developments along the way where I began to go, oh my gosh, there was no woman at the table here. And that would have changed how these right. mirrors were built. So right. these girls, these same two girls, different body types, mm -hmm. took a bunch of these um, programmers and technicians around and said, this is a good mirror, this is a bad mirror, and really gave them um, a definition of what a good mirror actually is. I know is. In, the, in the dressing room, or in my apartment, when it's the mirror is really slanted, I yeah. look just you know so much thinner. I know. <laughs> I really I know. You want a real mirror because you don't real. want people returning things. That's the thing. If they get home and it doesn't look as good on, on them there as in the store, they're going to return it. Definitely, that's a problem. Um, your brother has talked a lot about augmented reality and virtual reality and how that is sort of changing the game for you guys. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I think we've shown through some of our fashion shows, we've had drones, we've had live live stream uh, drones, we've had virtual reality where, you know, you felt like you were in the audience. And I think this is just the beginning of how it will work. I think we envision a world, and I hate to sound so Elon Musk-y, if you will. Why? So I think we envision a world where, you know, almost like a ticket master, you're buying your seat to the fashion show. You feel like you're there. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, in the far future, you're walking into my store and mm -hmm. trying on items and all from the seat of your couch and your sweatpants. Just take a moment. You just said my store. Yes. Do you, does that ever still hit you and remind you of when you were 
eating ramen in your apartment, not able to go out and buy a drink, let alone pay the electric bill? Like It does. It definitely hits me. And, and when people ask, how many stores do you have? That's when I'm like, oh, right. This was, this was like a far away, not reachable mm-hmm. dream a long, mm-hmm. you know, 10 years ago. You certainly have uh, shaken the New York fashion industry. You closed down Green Street in Soho for New York Fashion Week, had your show outside. Um, you latched on to the launch of Apple's iWatch. Uh, and tied that to one of your fashion shows. Talk about those moments. I think we view our fashion shows now as the culmination of what the buyers have bought, what what has resonated with the press that have all seen it now prior, Um, and really being able to give our customer a true see-now, buy-now experience so that she doesn't have this oh, this is cool, I can buy it in nine months. I think right. those Typically, New York Fashion Week shows things in the middle, you know, three, three seasons ahead of time. Correct. So what you're seeing on the runway is not in season, and you can't even buy it right now. You can't even buy it right now, and usually it's been copied by fast fashion prior to the real designer getting it out. Um, so I think we were sick of that cycle. We noticed uh, image fatigue. Um, you know, our good friend Ken Downing at Neiman Marcus would be trying to sell things to customers. They're like, I saw it. I'm sick of it. What's new? Even though that was new. Right. So I think our goal was to shift it back. So spring shows in spring, fall shows in fall. You get the outfit. Um, our sales were 200% uh, up for the month. So February to February from showing out of season to in season. So for us, it's a no-brainer. We just showed again in L.A. the same, you know, last September. Mm-hmm. Same thing, 226%. Um, and I think, you know what? We know it works for us. Our mm-hmm. consumer is excited. You generated all this work and all this attention into eight minutes. You might as well sell some stuff while you're doing it. The Apple iWatch story. Can you talk about that? Because you didn't know what was coming out. You just knew something was coming. And you tried to tailor some of your product to it. So I have to give my brother credit. You know, I think uh, he's in tune with things that I don't know what planet he's getting this information from, but he has this weird knowledge that something is coming. And so when we designed our first wearable, we actually had two. We had a notification bracelet and a charging bracelet. Mm -hmm. And um, I designed it, but he led the idea that we should have these these wearables. Um, We launched probably the day or the same day that Apple came out with the Apple Watch. So it was all about wearables and technology on your wrists, and here we were with that. Mm -hmm. Um, He did it again last season when um, Amazon came out with their uh, checkout system, and we had our self-checkout system. Again, we had no idea Amazon was going to launch that, but he's tuned in at a level that that seems to work for us. So it can't be all, uh, you know, roses. What do they say? Peaches and roses or something. I don't know what it <laughs> cupcakes is. Cupcakes and rainbows. There you go. It can't be all cupcakes and rainbows working with your brother. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what's the hard stuff? Because I did read, is it true you go to therapy or counseling once a year? Once a year we go to therapy. We get it all out on the table. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. Someone stops it from getting too ugly. Um, so it's not always perfect. I think... Um, Everyone's going to fail and everyone's going to mess up. And the other person, and this happens probably with business partners, whether they're siblings or not, has disappointments with each other. Um, I think we try and be honest about them. It's not comfortable at all for whoever's on the side of the disappointment. But I think it's better to air these things than to harbor them. 
and at the end of the day, we know that we have each other's back. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a very close-knit family, so we have to figure out how to get along, um, even if it's just for the Passover holiday. What does your dad say now? When, you know, he's the one who said, nope, I'm not going to help you. Go ask your brother for some money. <laughs> Does he wish he had in? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he's very proud. He's extremely proud, and uh, he just loves to be a voyeur and see it all happen. Do you feel, Rebecca, like you've made it? No, I think that's a misnomer. I think that I find that most entrepreneurs that I talk to, um, it's a mirage, right? Mm -hmm. And you're always going toward it and you hit that thing that you think means you made it and you're mm -hmm. like, nope, still haven't made it. And I think that people have to understand that the, the joy is in the journey. Mm -hmm. It's in overcoming the obstacles. It's having a battle that you didn't think you could win and winning it. It's not the, oh, suddenly all these things that I always thought I wanted happened because then you're always gonna keep going. Mm -hmm. You, are very personally um, committed to helping women, female entrepreneurs, especially in STEM, especially in the technology sector. You've partnered with Intel mm -hmm. on a pretty big program. What is it? What's the goal? So basically, it began with the smart mirrors and the lack of women at the table. And then it also became very prominent to me when we were designing the first wearables and I was debating with the gentleman who was the chief designer about the fact that you know the housing had to be plastic and he said we'll just paint it gold she won't notice oh. I was like oh yes she will notice and she's not buying a plastic bracelet um, it happened again um, when we were designing the next round of wearables and they thought oh a big amulet the size of an egg will be around a woman's neck and I said a woman's never gonna wear that um, and so this kept happening, and I thought, you know, if there was a woman at the table, not for the sake of having a woman to be equal, yeah. it's just a user experience, right? And, and what can happen when you unlock and you make more women at this table? Um, and it's been a declining statistic about uh, women getting to a certain level and then quitting, or even in school yeah. not finishing. Well, it's actually gotten worse. I mean, when you look at the <clears throat> statistics, um, women getting computer science degrees has fallen from about, you know, 38% in the 80s to around 17% today. It is getting worse. Why do you think that is? I think that, you know, if you look at how things are marketed, right? From an early age, women or little boys and little girls are being marketed to very differently. And it starts there. It starts with the fact that there were not a lot of female doctors until ER came out where women began to see that you could have a great career as a doctor, right? And now it's, you know, very high up, uh, close to being equal. There's no stellar female exa examples of women in STEM. There are now, mm -hmm. but it's not prominent enough, and it's not a sustained heavy marketing effort that you can be cool and be a coder. You know, I think that's going to change with people like Carly Kloss mm -hmm. promoting Code with Carly or people like Sheryl Sandberg, right. but it has to be a dedicated effort where it's not, here's the stroller, little girl. Mm -hmm. Here's the kitchen. Here's it's, the lab kit. Here, here's the know. lab kit. Here's the um, engine, you know, Goldie blocks, right? Great. So I think that it starts then, and then it starts with how women are educated mm -hmm. in those fields. So once you get to high school and college, we learn differently. And so how do these teachers actually say, okay, I'm gonna change how my coursework or how I'm gonna teach to be able to get more females to so stay. So who did that for you? I mean, here you are, uh, you know, in, 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 as a young girl and still in your mind, be fearless, I can do anything men can do. Who did that for you? My mom. 
I think, you know, she had two boys and she knew, well, well, they didn't know I was a girl until I came out. But I think once that happened, she said, my goal is to make sure that she fights back. And so whether it was making me do everything for myself growing up, which is a terrible feeling, you know, I have to, what? I have to, I have to register for my own camp. I have to sew my own ballet shoes when all the other dance moms are doing this. I have to make my own costumes. I have to, you know, all the things that you expect your parents to do for you. But it was a common thread that she's like, you want it? Figure it out. Do it. And so I think it was the tough love, but also don't take you-know-what from your brothers, fight back, that made me feel that way. You have said on this issue of equality, don't delete men from the conversation. Correct. I think there is a segment that I hear too often of women saying, uh, because they're so upset at the inequality, it's almost like, get them out of here. But you're never going to get an agreement between all parties unless you bring them along and you educate them and you show them how it's different. I mean, I think a good example is when someone sees a woman going through childbirth and the respect they have for the woman, right? Uh, you still need your partner there to support you. You do. I can attest to that. <laughs> so I think to say, you don't get it, let me shove you to the side, it only creates a barrier. Yeah. And I think it's about everybody working together and helping each other out. So uh, in this current administration, this is something Ivanka Trump has been very outspoken about. Um, she, you know, before her father was, was even running, um, was writing a lot about this and talking a lot about, about these issues. What is the one thing that you would like to see uh, from this administration, from the Trump administration on this front? I mean, I would like to obviously see the numbers actually grow. I would love to see, you know, the 78 cents or eight, was it yeah, 78 80. cents? So I'd love to see that climb closer to 100. I'd like to see real strides, real programs mm -hmm. that it's not this mentality of, I got to give you a handout because we have to be equal. It's no, we should be equal. So what has to be done to just level the playing field? Do you believe that should be government-led? Some folks talk about quotas, right? Instituting quotas for, for women on corporate boards and management. We've seen some European countries do that. I mean, how do you think it works? But how, how, how do, because we've been stuck at this 78 cents, 80 cents on the dollar, women making to men for a really long time. I mean, it would be nice to say to organizations, you need to show that you're 100%. And, you know, I think equal. You, equal. Yeah, I think it would be, I think if the company isn't going to police itself, yeah. then it would be nice for the... So Britain does that with some companies. Companies over X amount, you know, that make X amount or more, have X amount of employees have to show, you know, that there is equality across the board. Do you think it'd be, it'd, it'd be beneficial for the U.S. government to mandate that? I think it'd be very beneficial. I mean, imagine if you're a single mom and you're working and suddenly you can, you know, you're making that extra 15 cents and now you can provide for your family. Mm -hmm. I think that the payback would be so huge that it would be very valuable for companies to do it. You and your brother are launching slash have launched a VC firm, is that right, to invest in these companies, largely female-led? Yes. So we partnered with a gentleman named Pedro Torres Mackey. Um, he has a very successful, his own Quotidian Ventures uh, mm -hmm. VC fund. So because my brother and I have been so out there talking about technology 
and trying different technologies. Uh, we get a lot of inbound, will you help us? What do you think we should do? And we thought, you know what, let's take our knowledge and actually you know, put some money down and get our skin in the game and help these companies actually get started. So is it is it women or is it just young tech entrepreneurs? I'm focusing on women, but um, if, you, if you're a man and you have a great idea and we, and we can do something with it, then of course uh, we're not going to say no. Equal opportunity. <laughs> uh, you're a mom? I'm Two a mom. kids? Yes. Sons, daughters? An older boy, and a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl. So I'm really interested in where you fall on this question that I think any professional working woman, woman who's a mom gets, yes. and that is work-life balance. Yes. For me, I just wrote a column about this. Um, I don't think it exists. For me, it's a melding. Mm -hmm. It's a juggling. You know, my work bleeds into my home life. My home life bleeds into my work. And I try just not to be on my phone too much around my daughter, and that's a win, I guess. Yep. Where do you fall on that question? I fall in the, I agree with you, there is no balance. But I think that balance is a word that an evil person made up to, <laughs> to make women feel terrible for not achieving it. Um, and I think that if you decide you want to be in the workplace and have a family, you have to explore your limits. And every woman mm -hmm. has different ones. Um, and I've explored mine where I know I've been gone too long or home too much. Mm -hmm. um, and I know my comfort zone. And then getting strong enough to stay as much as possible in your comfort zone. Um, and always kind of like, okay, I worked late two nights this week. I'm going to maybe come into work 30 minutes late today. Mm -hmm. Or... Um, take my summer Friday and be with my kids. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not perfect. I've lately been trying to put the phone down when I get home. Um, but the other night my daughter literally was like, stop working, mommy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, that's the red alert. Yeah. Put it away. So I think it's those little things of when you're really home, you're home, you're focused. Mm -hmm. And when you're at work, you're focusing on work. So what do you want your kids to say about you when they are asked? by a reporter interviewing them about their <laughs> successful business that they have built together, brother and sister. What um, do you want your kids to say about you? I want them to say, gosh, I really wish she would have bought me more stuff. She never would buy me anything without me working for it. Good. Um, and I'd like them to say that they had a lot of fun. Mm. I think it's really important that they have a lot of fun um, and that life isn't too serious. It gets serious enough later on. Um, but that, you know, I try and keep them helping around the house mm -hmm. or if they want something they earn stamps I don't want to raise a spoiled brat and I see too many of them in New York City how do you define success what tells you you've succeeded I think it's a couple of things I think each time we hit a new milestone um, I you know when I could buy a coffee table I was like I've made it I bought mm -hmm. a coffee table mm -hmm. um, now it's that oh my gosh I can send my kids to summer camp or I can pay for their school mm -hmm. um, so I think it's different milestones that you never think you're gonna hit or you're arguing with your spouse about um, where you're gonna go on vacation whereas you couldn't go on vacation before so those types of things that yeah. you didn't ever imagine could happen the question becomes, with the company, where does it go from here? Do you want to take this company public? I think that we've talked a lot about it. We're not ready or even close to being ready to go public. I think that we're still on a great growth journey. Uh, there's still so much we haven't done. And I think going public for us would be something that when all the, all the 
shots have been fired in all the categories we want to launch are launched and you're really healthy across mm -hmm. all categories, mm -hmm. then we can talk about that. But I don't know, you know, I've heard good things and bad things about going public. So I yeah, think I mean, for you're us... You're a slave to the numbers. The, I mean, quarterly, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I mean, you see one CEO have a phone call and then, you know, the stock drops. And I don't know that I need that stress. I already have enough stress in my life. I don't, <laughs> I already have covered grace. I don't think I need more than that. Um, all right, we're going to do a lightning round. Okay, and I'm these ready. were, <coughs> I should admit, written by my awesome producer, Haley Dresden. So the, I am... You are seeing these for the first time. I am seeing these for the first <laughs> okay. time, which makes it fun. I'm trying to be quick. All right, you ready? Yes. Favorite tech device? Um, obviously, my iPhone. Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? Instagram. Favorite shopping tool? Ooh, uh, Net-a-Porter. Hidden talent? Um, I can do some accents, actually. You have to do one. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, you offered this up. Okay. Um, so I think it's Scottish, but my husband says it's Irish. Go for it. Okay. Oh, what are you doing there, laddie? Sounds a little Australian to me. <laughs> Hitting. Uh, all right. Um, East Coast or West Coast? Both coasts. Oh, come on. I'm from California. How could I not? You just have customers on both coasts. <laughs> That's true. You're from California. You live in New York. All right, I'll give you that. Favorite place to visit anywhere in the world? Harbor Island. Ideal weekend plans. Lots of sunshine, a beach, a bike ride, all with my kids. And I, I don't get to read anymore, but a book. Yeah, I haven't read a novel in a long, long time. Favorite season? Spring. Who's your hero? Ooh. Uh, any woman who has helped me get here. Daily inspiration? Uh, my children. I think that if things are tough or... Um, it's a bad week or a bad month or Mercury is in retrograde. Um, they bring me joy. It is right now, by the way. Okay, I'm adding my own at the end. Do blondes have more fun? Ooh, um, I've never been blonde and I look terrible as one when I put a wig on, <laughs> so I can't tell you. But I definitely think that um, it's possible. Rebecca Minkoff, thank you. Thank you. Great to have you on. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.